Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of That Gabby Roslin Podcast. This week, I chat to the extremely talented novelist Matt Haig. He's the number one trending author in the world right now for his book, The Midnight Library, which I adore. What a brilliant book. He also wrote Reasons to Stay Alive, How to Stop Time, and the international bestseller, A Boy Called Christmas, which is now going to be a film starring Dame Maggie Smith, Jim Broadbent, and loads of big names for Christmas 2021. We chat about all of that, plus growing up in a small town of Newark-on-Trent, Marmite and peanut butter, and actually lots of food chat, to be honest. And the power of words, even when he's just writing a to-do list. Now, please can I ask you a favour? Would you mind, please, subscribing by pressing the subscribe or follow button on the show? And then, if you wouldn't mind, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, which is the purple app on your iPhone or iPad. You simply scroll down to the bottom of all of the episodes and you'll see the stars where you can tap to rate and press write a review. It would mean the world to us. Thank you so much. Hi, Gabby. Hello, Matt. Hi, thank you for having me. You know that I absolutely love and adore you and I love your writing. And uh, you've become, what is it, the number one trending author for the Midnight Library in the world? Yes, apparently, which is certainly, yes, <gasps> English speaking, yes. So um, that's kind of surreal. I mean, that's just mad. I try and stay grateful and remember that, you know, this this is this is good when this happens and it's not normal. And um, it, it, so, so enjoy it while it's here do you, how do you how do you celebrate how do you how do you peak that enjoyment because i know you're all about living in the moment so let's talk about it as being in the moment how did you did you scream at your wife and in the nice way go oh my god look what i've just seen or did you just calmly as i imagine you calmly sitting there and coming out with a brilliant phrase that we can all then like on instagram and go you are our god you know how did you do it um with that one that was yeah that was very nice because it came from america the, the difference with this book is it's it, it sort of like it's found an um, american audience as well which i've never had before i've been published in america loads but normally generally ignored and the fact that you know it, reaching over there feels very nice i didn't do any screaming i didn't do any champagne um cork popping or anything like that 
it was a very sort of subdued 2021 <laughs> style um, absorption. Sounds perfect for me. Sounds absolutely perfect. Well, you know what? We should start with that book because you know what a huge fan I am of it. I I bought it for so many friends. I've read it through twice, and it when I when I finished it the first time. For anybody who hasn't read the Midnight Library, I'm. This is me saying it absolutely from my heart. Buy it, devour it, read it, take your time with it, and then read it again. It is extraordinary. So that's the embarrassment. Now, now I know I can feel you blushing, which is very sweet. <sighs> I really can. But but it does make you think about how to discover the best way to live, and and thinking back on all of those moments in life. It, I mean, it's it is it's an extraordinary book. You get lost in it. Is that how you write and why you write? Because you want people to become lost in your thoughts, in your work? Um, well, yeah. I mean, I suppose with The Midnight Library, I wrote it almost as self-therapy, really, for me. I mean, I think I think you, you can never you can never mind read another reader. The only reader you're ever going to truly know as a writer is, your, is yourself. So you have to write very true to yourself and you have to write the book that you want to read in that moment, the book that doesn't quite exist but that you would like to pull off the shelf. That's the sort of aim and with the midnight library yeah i mean i was someone who you know when i had uh, quite severe depression well very severe depression in my 20s and panic disorder and i was suicidal or everything one feature of all that horrible experience for me was a, a, a sense a really deep almost physical sense of regret of you know, how did I end up here? Why did this happen to me? All that kind of melodramatic stuff that goes through your head, quite self-indulgent in the way that mental illness can make you feel because you're just literally wrapped up in yourself. And it, it, I just always thought, oh, is there another timeline where I'd done something differently and my mind ended up in a different place? And that was always a feature of mental illness for me. And now, obviously, in the modern world, we kind of live in an age of comparison where not just how else we could have lived our own life, but we're seeing examples, for instance, on social media. Um, you know, you'll scroll through in the morning, lots of lovely posts. And even during lockdown, even during the sort of pandemic era, you're seeing lots of different alternative ways humans can live or spend their lockdown or do things, uh, you know, in different parts of the world. And so we're, we're constantly or subconsciously comparing ourselves or thinking about other alternatives, you know, not, not always in a, oh, I wish I was doing that, but inevitably our brains are sort of overloaded with options of how to live. And I think that can sometimes be a bit paralyzing. So I suppose in the Midnight Library, I was trying to write to myself as much as anyone about acceptance and about gratitude for the life you're in. And I, I've realized in my own life of, you know, 45 years of being on earth that I, my career and my uh, relationship life and all kinds of things have been in very different, like like most lives, have been in very different places at very different times, you know, whether that's financially, whether that's in terms of location and moving around the country or whatever it is. And you, you, you slowly learn as you get older that very often the things you think that will make your life absolutely complete or perfect, when you get them, you realise that actually 
not that much has fundamentally changed because wherever you go, you are, are taking yourself with you. And so really, rather than trying to always see happiness as some external thing that you just need to get hold of this or you just need, I don't know, a record deal from Simon Cowell or you need this or that or the other to, to achieve to achieve something. It starts with yourself fundamentally. You know, the way you can be in the most beautiful location on earth. You know, I, when I was at my very lowest point in life, when I was um, suicidal, when I was 24 years old, I was living in Spain. I was in the Balearics. I was in Ibiza, in the quiet part of Ibiza, in this beautiful villa and, uh, you know, the most gorgeous, glittering view of the Mediterranean Sea. And none of that meant anything. You know, when you're in a state of continual depression, none of that fixed anything. You know, I would have much rather have been somewhere very sort of bleak and cold and not feeling like that. So it's it's never quite the external thing obviously we need the external things we need comfort and it's nice to want things but they're not the magic fix and actually looking at our own lives and reinterpreting our own lives can be very valuable especially nowadays because I think one silver lining of um, this very strange uh, time we're living through is that we've all had this compulsory, not entirely wanted, life edit enforced on us, where we've had to actually appreciate what we had before in a way that we didn't always do at the time. So we really know what we value in our life now because we know what we miss and what we don't miss, if that makes sense. Oh, it does completely. It's very interesting, though, hearing you saying all of that, it it doesn't matter where you are you know you say there you were in Spain and you could have been in a um a gray place but but the, all the stuff I read about you as a as a teenager that was you were in Sheffield and you just wanted to get away so did you have that feeling at a young age that 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 happiness would be somewhere else and now you realize that it's not somewhere else physically somewhere else yeah yeah well, I was born in Sheffield but then when I was eight years old I moved to um, Newark on Trent and no offense to Newark on Trent but it's a market for those that don't know it's a market town in Nottinghamshire with a population of 40,000 people and it's got a lot better and it's got a lot of stuff there now but at the time in the 1980s it was the archetypal um, small town where culturally there wasn't anything going on I mean we didn't have a cinema we didn't have a bookshop we, no we bookshop. A... No, see that bit. That that's the bit that makes me go. Whoa! No bookshop. Oh gosh. <laughs> Was there a library? I think we had a W. H. Smiths, but a very very meagre selection of books was available and then we we did have a library we had a newark on trent still to this day has a very nice library which is like a um greenhouse it's all glass walled and it's very light and bright and it's it's a lovely little thing and i spent a lot of time there but no and at the time being a typical teenager in quite a small town i just wanted to escape i can always remember and it might be a and not a real thing she said, but I read in something like, I don't know, can you remember Look In magazine or one of those? Yeah, old... la, 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 Look In. <laughs> yes. Well, it was mentioned that Madonna on her first trip um, to New York said, um, take me to the centre of everything. And, and she, they took her to Times Square or something. And that quote always 
stayed in my head as a teenager. I just wanted to be in the centre of everything and all the buzz and life. And yes, Newark on Trent did not feel in the 1980s like <laughs> it was the centre of everything. But then as you go as you go older, you realise that actually, you know, it's your mind. Your mind you, you have you can have any kind of life really, but not not the extremes of extreme poverty or horrible lives or, you know, extreme billionaire lifestyle but most lives that sort of fall somewhere in the middle that they know you know they all know suffering to some degree they all know happiness to some degree they all know those sort of neutral states to some degree they all know but you know it's all there really and and I feel like we're encouraged to always strive for something that's that we don't have and ultimately that makes us um feel unnecessarily bad about the life we're stuck in. So yeah, the Midnight Library was kind of my way to address that feeling. It, it's very interesting because I have this conversation with a lot of people because I'm a great, I, I was brought up by very supportive parents who completely um, supported uh, my choice to be a TV presenter, my dream. It was my dream from tiny. So listening to how you speak and reading your words and devouring your books, do you believe in dreams then? Do you think dreams are attainable? And once you reach the dream, do the dreams keep growing? Or are you saying there's no such thing as a dream? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I definitely think you need forward momentum and you definitely need to have things to sort of strive towards. And and to be honest, that was one of the things that helped me pull out of depression was sort of wanting to be a writer and you know I didn't I went through a phase where the dream was so strong that I didn't even mind the rejection letters I saw it all as part of the journey yes so I had yes, like yes I get that that's I fantastic. had like yeah. 50 rejection letters and I just saw it as as a chapter in the journey you know I was so determined you know as a 20 something person who just sort of recovered from depression so I I'm not saying that I'm saying that we're kind of it's when we feel nothing but a lack. I feel like, you know, life should be an adventure where we're sort of able to sort of do two things at once. We were able to sort of envision a future that we want to work towards, but also at the same time, not in doing that, absolutely hate the present we are in, but see it as part of that process. You know, it's sort of like having your foot in two places at once. And I think as human beings, we do have that ability to actually be grateful in the present, but still have dreams we want to fulfill and, and doing that. And as a teenager, I was a typical sort of morose teenager who wasn't happy in the present. I wasn't diagnosed with anything then. I know I, I wasn't really aware of things like depression or anything until I was 24 years old. But I do think I spent too much of my time not living in the present at all and always sort of like having some, uh, I don't know, normal fantasy of being in Duran Duran or something. And, you know, not actually. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. I think, I, oh, no, I won't embarrass you for my No, go on. Oh, go on. Yes. Oh, well, when I was, when I was uh, nine years old, me and my sister were in a, a we recorded some music and I, I, I phoned up EMI. And um, to see if I, um, so I, I had very um, early delusions of grandeur. Have you got that recording still? <laughs> No. Oh, that's such a shame. Not. <laughs> oh, I love that. I Sorry. love that. Yeah, so I was an early, yeah, early ambitious megalomaniac. <laughs> I picked out some some wonderful quotes that I found. So I'm going to throw these back at you. They, you, you might not have said them. But um, uh, I saw in Vogue that you said that the future is open and that people are good. And this was in an article that you wrote for Vogue. And those two things, I when I read them yesterday, 
I was shouting them around the house. I said, you know, just remember the future is open and people are good. And it just felt so apt for right now. It really did. It's so simple. Those two lines are so simple. Well, I always think like you can see things almost how you want to see them. Like, of course, you can go through your whole life and, and just focus on the on the misery and the sort of bad stuff. And, and, you know, often, you know, with the news coverage and whatever it is, we're kind of encouraged to do that a bit. But it, it's also how you frame it. I think on an individual level, you know, over this last year, amid all the bad news, on my little community around me and my street where we live and stuff, I feel like people are actually, you know, it's bringing out the best in people. You know, I, I didn't actually know my neighbours' names Um over a year ago and now know them quite well in a socially distanced way you know across the street and all of that stuff but you know and I feel like in a very strange way this sort of forced being apart has has made us value other human beings more and care about people more if anything and um, so hopefully you know once this is all over which is hopefully soon um, it will be nice to take some of that with us. I, I mean I, I, I I've always been a believer that people are good I don't start with the premise that somebody is bad and they have to prove that they're good I start with that everybody's good yes exactly and also importantly you know because we're human beings and not every single action we do every, you know we have moments of weakness there are t- things that people do in their life that aren't their best selves there are moments where you where you know someone swipes out on the internet and it might not actually be themselves so I feel like Alongside that, we've also got to sort of develop like a kind of self-forgiveness or acceptance because the risk is if if you are told, if a child is told they're a bad person over and over and over again, they become to sort of identify themselves as a bad person. So one reason to sort of see people as essentially good is it actually leads to more goodness, I think. I think think once you start having a more hopeful, optimistic outlook on life, you, you see that hope and optimism everywhere and it also brings it out in other people it's like if you're a very very cynically minded person then you can see reasons for your cynicism everywhere but if alternatively if you're an optimistic person you see you can see reasons for optimism somewhere and and i i I, to be perfectly frank with you gabby i used to be quite a pessimistic person because i was going through depression and that's a kind of symptom of depression and in a very strange way my experience of depression or rather my recovery from depression that actually made me an optimist because the things I was my mind was telling me at my worst point in life largely turned out to be false turned out to be lies you know I I, go back to me at 24 I absolutely was convinced nothing good would happen in my life I was convinced that Andrew and my partner would leave me I was convinced that I'd be you know this sounds bleak but I was convinced I wouldn't live to be 25 years old because every day was such a battle to get through I was convinced of very you know and and when I say convinced I really mean that I literally thought there was no future and I think that's the difference between anxiety and depression anxiety is where you're worried about the future whereas depression is almost like where you know everything's going to be terrible and awful and all those things and so when you start to recover when you start to see the sort of sunlight through the clouds and you start to have moments not necessarily of happiness but of neutrality where you're not feeling as bleak as you do then that opens up this sort of world of possibility and you think hold on a minute actually you know hope is as real if not more real and pessimism and actually 
it's got a use, you know, you know, if you've got a choice between optimism and pessimism, you know, I'd, I'd go for optimism because at least even if it's wrong, it's useful and it can get you through things. Whereas pessimism, you know, not so much. So in a, in a very strange way, after that moment, I, I became almost like a evangelical optimist because where I could do anything or, you know, see any possibility because I'd done something which had felt impossible, which was, um, it sounds melodramatic again, but it was to stay alive, felt like it was impossible. And then you did that. And then, then other things like, oh, I, I want to publish a book or whatever. That seems like immediately doable because you've done something which felt impossible. Well, you're, you're talking to the person who's been an eternal optimist. And I, I mean, for years, it's very interesting because for years and years and years, I've said this quite often, but for years and years and years, I was uh, by press and by people in the street, they go, no, oh, you can't always really be that happy. That's not real. That's not, are you always smiling? Why are you? And, and I used to say, sorry, because I had suddenly felt guilty. I thought, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm happy. I'm so, but now it's as if I, there's been a shift. I feel that there's a shift in the world and I don't just mean through the pandemic at all, but I think over the past few years, there's a shift that people accept positivity and happiness and kindness and they don't see it as a, a weakness and it's weird that it used to be seen as a weakness yeah I know I know I feel like you know it, it almost people are, are afraid of it somehow like like it's like a defense mechanism like they don't dare be hopeful or happy because then their life might be even crueler to them or something but actually I find that once you have that outlook or or try you know try to cultivate that outlook then actually that leads to other good things happening and it takes you out of your shell and it, and it's probably mentally and physically a lot healthier to have that approach anyway and um yeah i mean that that doesn't mean you know bad things don't happen or there's a, it just me it, it just i think i think some sometimes hope isn't about actually thinking everything's going to be perfect or everything's going to be beautiful hope is about thinking well whatever happens I'm going to survive this or get through this uh, or it won't necessarily be as as bad as I thought. You know, like it's about reframing things, I think, because we, we take a word like um, uncertainty and like uncertainty is so, has been so used in the last year in the news and so, you know, there's un uncertainty in the air and we're so conditioned, I think, to see uncertainty as a, as a bad thing. And actually, uncertainty, you can reframe uncertainty because life is uncertain to actually say, well, actually, it's good because it, it means that that bad thing that's coming up in the calendar or this, that and the other, you know, there's something uncertain about it. I don't know. It might lead to something good that I can't foresee. It might lead to a friendship that I don't have yet. It might lead to um, me just, me becoming a stronger person. It might lead to something else. You know, like the very worst experiences of my life have often been the ones that, uh, either made me a better person or helped me develop a friendship or, or or managed to sort of turn them into something in a creative way or whatever. And so you, you never know, um, however bad a present moment is, how fertile that will prove to be in the future. I, I, I'm, I'm a great lover, as you've read my books, you probably know this, I, I, I I love probably too much. I love metaphors. So I love sort of seeing a metaphor in things, but I love the metaphor about a volcano, you know, because, um, I, I went to, I was lucky enough to go to Hawaii two years ago and watch up the volcanoes there. And I'm really into the idea of volcanoes. And, um, 
what, what's fascinating about volcanoes is because they're big, scary things that can erupt and lead to all this devastation. But actually, places which have volcanoes, they're like the lushest places on Earth. They've got the most life and biodiversity of anywhere on Earth. And volcanic ash sort of leads to the um, most fertile beautiful soil so I see that as as a metaphor for me for me who when I had a full-blown breakdown which kind of felt like a sort of volcanic eruption of sort of mental health nightmares in its wake it kind of led to sort of beautiful things and senses of gratitude at sort of normal life the normal life I'd been bored with before and appreciation of small things which I never had because of that volcano going off so often it's a very worse things in life that somehow the silver lining really is bright and dazzling and have you seen the the david attenborough where about the volcano i haven't <gasps> i need to it's on our iPad. We, we, we're trying to catch up with all our david attenborough stuff because I, i've got a daughter who is david attenborough super fan watch it tonight i mean i, I will just because it's exactly what you said and and the, we all sat here as a family watching it and i never knew i never really put that you've just put into words exactly what that program's all about you've got to watch it tonight okay. with family all oh, right it's we will mind we will blowing. watch it absolutely mind blowing aren't words um, amazing though because it's very interesting you said if you have uncertainty and people see the negative connotation of it it's interesting that a lot of people keep saying i wish they had a different word for lockdown because lockdown ha- is so negative it's so it just means that's it you can't do anything but maybe there's a way of looking at that word and turning it around and trying to make it into a positive word. Just the simple words, because that's what you do with words. You change a word. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but the words, exactly, the language of uh, COVID, the lockdown, isolation, all of that stuff. Whereas it's a kind of, you know, it's a reset, it's hibernation. I mean, it's obviously lockdown is very different for different people. Absolutely, of course. I'm lucky to sort of, live with other people and I feel like one thing that's been quite important it for me has been that I actually realized that some of the ways I've been living before I don't actually need desperately to return to I don't need to return to um you know packed trains to London and bustling crowds as someone who always was it gets a little bit of anxiety around lots of people. You know, there's been aspects of it. I say, obviously, there's been more aspects that I want to return to. And, you know, as, as a cinema fan, as a theatre fan, as a holiday fan, as a hug, hug my parents fan, I am very much missing all that stuff. But but it's also been a chance to sort of reevaluate um, what you do really miss and what, what you might not miss so much. Some of the things that you love... You can't miss because I presume you have marmite and peanut butter at home. <laughs> yes. Is that right? Is, it's one of yes, your absolute passions. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This goes all, all the way back to my childhood and like my grandma. And I used to think I was the only person in the world who did this. But now, now you can even buy marmite yes. peanut butter as a thing. <laughs> so, um, I, that was my moment actually where I decided actually, probably the best thing in life is to be a social media influencer because I got sent free Marmite peanut butter. <laughs> and I thought, okay, <laughs> screw this. I'm just going to, you know, head to the beach with my Marmite peanut butter. Because <laughs> I can't eat, eat bread because I have a proper gluten. I'm properly allergic. Not just a trendy thing. I'm properly allergic. I get ill. Uh, but there is nothing greater than all that. Oh, some say, oh, you see. Now I've said it. I now crave 
um, Marmite and um, peanut butter. We used to just mix it together. I think that we get buying it ready mixed. It's not the same. Doesn't do the same thing for me. It's not marmitey enough I, uh, for for me. I mean, I I I, I, I I'm. I love Marmite. And I used to come home, you know, my, for one highlight of being a teenager in New York on Trent, which I could have done anyway, really. I came home and had a triple decker Marmite and peanut butter, um, sandwich after, after school. And yeah, it was a bit gross probably, but, um. Do you ever have it by the spoonful? On its own? I have done. I mean, I have done. I mean, that. Even for me, that is pushing it. Do you do that? I have done it. I've had to do it on television because I used to go on and on about how much I love it. And then I had to have a spoonful of pickle lilies afterwards because I love pickle lily. Do you like pickle lily? I do like pickle lily. I love anything pickly, basically. I love pickles. I love salty stuff. I love, yeah. Last night we had curry night. And the good thing about curry night is we get, we, we get all the pickles out of the yes. thing. If I'm seeing your lime pickles and your mango chutneys and, you know, I'm in heaven with, with, with condiments. Everywhere. Oh, me too. I have to say that that my have you tried? Uh, I said the Barry Norman pickled onions. For Barry Norman pickled. Onions. Barry Norman. I'm sure it's Barry. Yeah, Barry Norman. Who used to do the do used to film. do film? Yeah, film whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They used to be because I, I, I'm literally, and this is really embarrassing. And they've tested me on live television about this. But if you start talking about pickles, I, I my mouth starts watering. I have anything fermented, anything pickled. <laughs> Yeah. I can't. And once I start, no, I can't. I love start. it. I love it. I love oh, it. Oh, that's it. Our night out sorted. Yeah, you know, no one will come near us because of our breath. But you know, yeah, just <laughs> pickled garlic. Now that's a thing. Yeah. Oh, I love well, a pickled uh, garlic. I'm not a massively amazing chef, but I've been doing a lot of cooking in this year as something to do. I've, I've been doing a lot of cooking, and my one gripe with most cookery books is they only ever never have more than two cloves of garlic in any recipe i i go for like i, oh, I see, guess i saw you writing about I, saw, <laughs> I see two cloves of garlic and i think no they mean 10 they mean 10 cloves yes. of garlic or, or they might mean two bulbs two bulbs so change the word cloves to bulbs that's exactly what i do <laughs> i exactly the same i don't understand it. it's just not you just but i put garlic in everything I, I literally put garlic in everything. And then I went to a place. There used to be a place in Soho where you could get garlic. Oh, you, and they even had garlic ice cream. And everyone said, you're not going to try. I did. It was nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've had some savory. Uh, we went in the days when you could go to a foreign country, we went to a Lyon in France and they've got the craziest ice cream shop there. With I think they had courgette ice cream, for instance. They, they had uh, everything. I mean, and most of it probably I didn't particularly fancy the, the nicest ice cream i ever had which is, is is kind of a sweet ice cream was there's a place in brighton boho galato i'll just give them a plug uh, and they 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 um sell rose and lychee sorbet and it's just divine oh now you see you just my two favorite things uh pickles and ice cream and i last summer for my birthday my husband bought me my very own ice cream machine i I cannot tell you what a joy it was. My favourite is, I always is, either pistachio or banana. So I thought I'd put the two together. Oh, it's wow. Good. Yeah, I can imagine that, actually. Yes. Yes, I, I'd like that. Pistachio used to be my ultimate go-to. Uh, yeah, pistachio and banana. That, that, that would definitely work. Give it a go. Trust me, that. Watching the volcanoes eating... Uh, pistachio and banana ice cream and starting with some yes. pickled onions. Do you like hummus? Oh, I love it. Have you tried the beetroot one? I have tried the beetroot one. I make my own hummus now. 
This is what I do on a on a, on a Saturday because it's super easy making hummus. And it, yeah, because it's not proper cooking. You're not really cooking, cooking. You're just mixing and mashing everything together. And um, yeah, I do a really nice red pepper hummus. Um, so I just wanted to show off about that. Okay, no, no, do. Because when I try and make it at home, it goes, it's so dry that it sort of it sticks my teeth together you need to put a little bit of water in there ton of oil and lemon juice for the texture um yeah and lots of garlic yeah i'm I'm gonna do a cookbook next i'm sure you and charlie mackesey and i always i quote you two together and i hope you don't mind that and i charlie was a guest on this and um it's such an amazing person to to chat to as are you and i think the two of you i keep saying the two of you've got to do something together uh, it feels so right that you do that it would just make sense i'd love that i i think i think charlie's amazing i love the i love how atmospheric his pictures are and like yeah i feel like um what i like about charlie is that it, they're not just sort of like he always they're very stormy his pictures so it's always about going through something it's not saying as i was just saying before it's not about saying everything's going to be all right and everything's going to be rainbows and unicorns it's about actually saying whatever happens whatever storm this is we will hold our hands and we will be together and we will get through this and i think that's been the message of this year because obviously not everything's perfect not everything's brilliant but um yeah going through yeah i think charlie's brilliant he's had an incredible success with this book and justifiably because because he's just yeah he's been great you both have you both have and that's why you two should do something together but but the, it's extraordinary that i wonder if you looked at the, the the followers on social media that you have and that he has i bet it would be the same people because you i mean i'm always reposting your quotes uh because you just it's quite bizarre you you know how to get into people's heads and you know exact, and I, I mean that as a compliment. I don't mean you know you're you're not in Doctor Who taking <laughs> yeah, over our minds. Hypnotizing the world. <laughs> you're taking <laughs> over, but you with your with your quotes, you you just know the right time to put them out. And do you plan them? I'm just quite fascinated to know. No, you don't. You just write it and go. I don't. I, I'm not. I'm not any. I'm not a planner. I'm, I mean, I know. I know there are things you can do, like on social media, where you can actually time things and you can write things. And uh, uh, but no, I'm. I'm just. Uh, I, I, there's not too much thought in it, really. I. It just. Yeah. I, and I think that's the best way to do it, really, because if if you're feeling something at that moment and you're being true about what you're feeling or you're being true about what you want to hear then there's a good chance in that same moment there will be someone else who wants to hear that thing and that it gives them some comfort too so I think you know I try and be as natural as possible I sometimes repeat things that I've said before and things that 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 I'm feeling again or whatever but but no when I'm right posting something new up I'm genuinely um feeling it in that um, moment, yes. It's interesting because I've I've also read that you're a list maker, so that's why I thought you might be quite organised and and planning. Well, I do. I like lists. I like lists, but I, I, the reason I like lists is that easy they're easy to read and kind of easy to write and they're very easy to, to focus your mind I can remember actually because um where, although I had depression I was simultaneously diagnosed with panic disorder where, which is a very sort of extreme state of anxiety and what one of the things that made it difficult to do was to read like it was really very hard for me for a good three or four years to actually concentrate and focus on things so 
as someone who's always liked to write and always liked to read, I really realised that things like lists and things that like quotations and little short, like inspiring quotes, those things can really sort of still get in. Whatever state your head's at, you know, it, those sort of things actually can actually focus your concentration. And so I think one thing I have in mind when I'm writing these sort of very short form things, whether it's lists or um, little Instagram quotes or whatever, is I remember myself when I, I couldn't really concentrate on that much. And and then trying to think, how do you make someone who, who who who's in that state of mind, how do you get through to someone who might be feeling really bad in that moment? How do you actually sort of hack into that brain and make them sort of focus on stuff? So that's what I have in mind sometimes and lists are a, a good way but it's, it's, I don't know what it is about a list maybe it's just the way it's laid out but it's a good way to sort of focus um your brain I'm gonna start I've never done it my husband does he has his list and he ticks it off in the day I've never done that I sort of just go through it yeah I'm not that sort of person like like Andrea my wife she she literally if she's got any work to do the first thing it becomes is a list and then it is literally procedural she'll go through it and do it and I would love to be that organized lists for me are more a way of sort of like collecting your thoughts together like you know so it'll be a a, a vague list about you know so I did sort of 10 lockdown tips or uh, 10 anxiety tips or whatever and it's just a way to focus my thoughts probably because my thoughts need a bit of organization but it's not necessarily something I will then do as a unless it's a um unless it's a recipe and then I, i'll go for it and then trip over garlic and uh, add a bit of marmite and then we'll <laughs> <laughs> and you have to write it all down for your book for your recipe book um uh, can we talk your your books turning into films because how does that feel so i've we've all seen the trails because it's been released for uh, father christmas and me with Dame Maggie Smith. I mean, what a cast as well in it. But but how does it feel? And and I know all the stuff about um, how to stop time and uh, Benedict mm. Cumberbatch. But how does it feel seeing your words coming to life? Because it's in your head, and these characters are in your head, and how you picture them. And because I'm a, I'm a, I love books. I, I you know you and I. We, I, I mean, I devour books. I love books. I've got so many next to my bed. I always loved it i love working with the book trust i just think books are magical oh yeah very great oh but but, and so many charities who supply books to people who don't have them because i think books as a child it just keeps your imagination yeah book trust and reading agency we're very lucky in britain that we've got a lot of great organizations and charities that really encourage um reading and a democratic approach to reading you know reading is for Everybody, and I think I think sometimes my only gripe with book culture in this country is that it it, it sometimes becomes a slightly snobby thing, or it, you know this idea that books are define you as a type of person, yes. and that and people grow up through the education system thinking, oh, I'm not a book person, and it's like you know there's no you know everyone can be a book person you know and I, I feel like you know even if you're watching uh wall-to-wall netflix you know half the things you're watching possibly started off as books and and you know every every, every drama you watch starts off as words on a page so I, I feel like everybody is kind of a book person but i feel like some people feel a bit shut out from the world of books and and that's you know something we need to address I completely agree with you. And it drives that actually, I can start ranting about it, but I won't. But it drives me mad where where 
um, somebody puts somebody else down. You mean you haven't read that? Oh, you've read yeah. that? Oh, is that what you... I remember my mum, when I was reading really trashy novels as a teenager, and I I devoured them. I absolutely devoured them. And I remember my mum once coming in, she just put... Uh, it's a completely true story. And she put Wuthering Heights down. I said, well, why have you given me that? She said, carry on reading what you're doing, but I'm just putting this book here. So I went, oh, and she never said don't read those books, but she also gave me that. So I then picked it up. I read it and thought, oh, that's incredible. And then I went back to my trashy novels and then she did it again. And it, But she was never saying to me, that's disgusting. Don't read that rubbish. She just liked the fact I was reading. There were words and I could picture, Yes, you know, I could have my imagination. Because I think the one thing that puts like, you know, because I, I know the teenage years is an age that a lot of people fall out of reading. It's when, when it's presented as this very, very sort of like too earnest. It's almost like it's a whole grain cereal that's there to do you good, but it, it might be a bit yeah. dull. Yeah. And, and actually, you know, books can be a sort of radical, exciting invigorating as any sort of a film or TV show or song or whatever. And, you know, they're, they're just a, an entertainment form at the end of the day. And we can get a lot of information and inspiration from them. But they're also there to entertain us as well as enlighten us. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm I'm big. My, you know, what I used to rant about in the old days, I'm a big ranter about sort of book snobbery and about, you know, and there is a lot of snobbery in the book industry that's not often always admitted but uh, yeah I think this sort of idea of a class system of books is a bit um, silly and old-fashioned now and um, I feel like we are actually one of the good things about social media and the internet is it's encouraged readers from everywhere and all types of things and uh, one one thing about this last year is you know although a lot of the arts and culture sector has been so badly hit people have been turning to books and books in some quarters are, are kind of thriving right now because I think, you know, people don't just want to be on their phones all day, don't just want to be on TV today. They want a, a, a space for reflection and to actually um, have a bit of quiet time, a bit of a communication with an author and that's a kind of therapeutic thing, I think. Um, uh, yes, I want to go back to your your books as films. So when you see the films how does that feel because these people were in your head you knew them so well you could picture their faces their their expressions their words you heard their sounds their voices how is it to see it then played out in front of you yes well the one only for one i've seen the ones that's, that's finished that's coming out this year the boy called christmas the kids one and that is um well they've done an amazing job and it is totally surreal to um see someone like Maggie Smith or Sally Hawkins or whoever reading, well, saying words that started off in your head that you wrote down, wondering even if a book would be published, let alone that anyone would read it, let alone that anyone would speak it, let alone it would be those speaking it. And it was just like, yeah, that totally surreal. What was even more surreal was actually uh, with that film, I went on um, to Prague where they filmed it and They'd built the whole elf village out of wood and you were walking around a world that you'd written about in just about two or three sentences. And out of that, they built this whole place and people were going around, you know, there's these sort of extras from the Czech Republic who were going around dressed as elves and stuff. And you're walking around thinking, oh my goodness, I started all this. This is crazy. And um Yes, that was very surreal because most of the time, even when you're getting lots of good news and praise and people saying nice things and nice things happen, 
generally as a writer, you're you're still at home with your laptop and nothing's changing. But when you actually went on the film set, you, you, you thought, oh my goodness, this is something I created that's helped create and it's out there. Very surreal and very uh, lovely. Oh, well, good. In, surreal in a good way. Surreal in a good way. But it was kind of like, yeah, I was a little bit speechless when I saw it because it was... Um, it was great the way they've done it. I mean, it's actually probably better than I could have imagined because they're obviously getting the the best um, set designers and, and things like that. So you think, oh, oh yeah, okay, I, I, I'll take credit for this. But yeah, this is this is great what you've done with it. But yeah, so actually, I genuinely feel like with this one, they've been so true to the book and they've kept me in the loop so nicely about it actually feels like a a film that's been made for the right reasons and I I genuinely think people will like it when they see it so I am excited I can't wait I can't wait but Midnight Library surely that that's going to be a film I mean it is I read it as a film if you see what I mean hopefully hopefully that would be nice um your film rights have been sold so we will see we will see but you know this is such a strange weird time for um filmmaking and filmmakers but yes all being well hopefully something will happen but I also learned a long time ago for my own sanity's sake not to realize that just because you've sort of given someone the film rights or something that that means um a film will be happening I can remember my very first book this is a total name dropping and show offy but my very first book was optioned by Brad Pitt Oh, Brad Pitt's film company. And this was when I was like, no one had read me at all. This was when I was, um, you know, back living in in a flat in Leeds and struggling to pay the rent. And my first book, which was called The Last Family in England, you know, I suddenly got this news that Brad Pitt optioned me. And I I literally thought, okay, by the end of the year, I'd be in Malibu. I'd be retired. (laughs) (laughs) There'd be red carpets galore, and you know that. And that that wasn't the reality at all, and that never ended up happening. But I feel like again, going back to that thing about sort of disappoint, how disappointments and stuff you you can reframe them. I'm I'm so thankful in a way that I I sort of took a kind of long winding route with my books. You know, Midnight Library. It was funny the other day. Someone called it an overnight success. The Midnight Library was like book number. 16 so I've I've definitely paid my dues as the sort of struggling writer and I've learned a lot of lessons and I've learned about how to be grateful for things and what what's not normal and what is normal so who, who would you cast in it though because I, I always I love those casting games have you must have people in mind for the midnight life well I mean to, to be honest I mean the audio uh, we were incredibly lucky with the audiobook that they got Carrie Mulligan um to read the audiobook and I think she'd be great as Nora because she's that right sort of age and right sort of person to do that um I haven't been watching too much telly actually um recently because I've been um so busy making my hummus and my peanut butter sandwiches that I've not had. <laughs> <And your loads laughs> of my, my Instagram quotes <laughs> yes <laughs> um, can I ask you because I ask everybody in this podcast what makes you properly laugh because I can tell you love a giggle my daughter is is crazy and she she makes me laugh quite a lot and I I feel like children's sense of humor uh, just it's just so funny the fresh rate I'm trying to think of well for instance um I don't know if have you ever seen Hamilton the musical yes I have, have you seen, yes well about Alexander ha- Hamilton well my daughter wants to have a hamster just so she can call the hamster Alexander Hamsterton. <laughs> I like that. She wants a cat called Aaron Purr. And she's gone through the whole Hamilton cast and how she'd, she would oh. um, do that. So, so yes, my daughter always makes me chuckle. Um, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for a good 
I, I don't know. Uh, Alf, Alf always makes me laugh. Uh, you know, we watched Alf of a gazillionth um, time over Christmas, and um, there's something about Will Ferrell and you know whether he's jumping on a like, Christmas tree of a snowball fight or whatever it is. There's so many scenes in that film. I, I'm I'm just quite deeply immature. So any of those sort of like lowbrow comedy American stuff, you know, I'll be laughing at. But you know, and um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm really trying to wrap my brains because me and my wife giggled like little kids the other day over something i can't remember but i just remember how good it feels to have a prop you know when you just can't when you can't straighten your face and you feel like you're a, a naughty school child again that is just yeah that's the great when you can still do that that's me most of the time i'm like a naughty school child the laughter is the is the best best thing it is just so good it, it's it just brings joy and it also passes on because you can start laughing so you if you started laughing now i'd laugh and i wouldn't know what you were laughing yeah, about it's contagious and and it and then the next person would laugh and the next person i love it i absolutely love it um i just want to end on on one other um uh quote if you don't mind um which i which i loved and you said that you want to believe in the possibilities of change and and i know that we've we've mentioned it before but what for you because you you're very grateful for being in the moment and everything but for you is there anything that you still are open to change about or that you would like to change or that you're thinking may change do you see what I'm i just want to end on that if that's yes well i think i think you know change is the nature of life my favorite quote of all quotes is a quote i only heard for the first time this year and it's by a very very ancient greek philosopher like, like before socrates like like before philosophy was a thing right this guy called heraclitus and he said um no man because they always spoke about men but no person no man um steps into the same river twice because it's not the same river and it's not the same man. And that is one of those mind-boggling quotes and you, you start to think what it's about. But it, it's about how actually life is changed. We change all the time. So when we're facing a moment of difficulty, it's important to know that this won't be forever. This won't be the moment we're stuck in forever. And we change and we evolve. And yes, there's a sort of scary and uncertain side to that, but there's also a very positive and hopeful side to that. And the hardest question I ever got asked at an event um, about mental health was someone said, well, you know, it was kind of okay for you because you had a bit of support. You had your family around you when you were ill. You, you had a partner. And what would you say to somebody who felt that low as you did in that situation, who felt like they had no one? And um, I feel like in, in a very strange way, the answer is still to stay around for other people. It's just that those other people are the people you haven't met yet. They're the people you're going to become because there's this wonderful term in science um, called neuroplasticity. And what neuroplasticity is, it's the way our minds change 
through living, through our experiences, through what we read, through who we interact with, through life itself. So just as all of us would say we're a slightly different person to who we were as a child or a teenager or when we were 21, we're, we, we continually, that process continues throughout our life. So we're always evolving, we're always changing, and we're always open to the world and new experiences because we actually are always becoming a new person all the time. And I find that a wonderful, hopeful idea. What a perfect way to finish this. You know, I think you're a complete joy. Thank you for your beautiful books and thank you for your beautiful words. And thank you for your inspiration and just for being you. And I'm I'm so damn delighted that at 24, you got that ray of light because uh, you brought it, you shared it to, with all of us. So thank you so much, my lovely. Thank you so much, Gabby, for having me. That was beautiful. It's always lovely to chat to you. You're the best person to chat with. Thank you. Oh, he says the nicest things. Thank you, Matt. That Gabby Roslin podcast is proudly produced by Cameo Productions. Music by Beth Macari. Please press the subscribe button and it will come straight to your phone on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>